when I take off all those boxes, when I understand that, um, you know, liquidity, uh, global liquidity, it flows harder and faster every single cycle um, as a response from the Fed because they don't know any better. They're not going to change their ways. Then uh, I pair that with the existence of Bitcoin, right? Then I understand that Bitcoin is essentially a check on that pro-cyclical over-easing, uh, over-tightening, followed by over-easing, followed by over-tightening, this boom-and-bust cycle monetary policy that continues injecting the economy with you know, increasing amounts of liquidity every single time. And so Bitcoin offers up the apex solution for that. So asset prices in general, right, they all appreciate when global liquidity appreciates. But what is the most porous sponge out there? And Bitcoin, Bitcoin's the most porous sponge out there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, I have on Joe Consorti. Joe, welcome. Thanks for having me, Joe. I'm excited to chat. Of course. A fellow Joe on the podcast, so this should be uh, exciting. Am I the first one? Am I the first uh, second Joe that's appeared alongside you? Yeah, I think I think so. Second Joe. Uh, first Joe, but two Joes in one. Um, so this will be a good, good episode. Um, first, I want to kind of start out with how did you originally get into Bitcoin? Like what caught your attention and were you immediately like, oh, this is, you know, the future world reserve currency or were you like, you know, this is sketchy. I don't know what this is. For sure. Yeah. So to take it all the way back, um, you know, I, I went to a school in the Northeast and um, that school ended up going home. We got, we got sent home for COVID. And uh, that's generally where my level of skepticism towards higher education began. And then that skepticism towards higher education sort of burgeoned into a skepticism of uh, institutions in general. And like a lot of people, that general skepticism of authority is what leads people to Bitcoin. But I, I hadn't been introduced to it at that point. Uh, but when I got sent home from COVID, uh, it, was, it was pretty much it was, it was a huge bummer specifically because it was my freshman year of college and uh, it was during spring break. So I left all of my stuff in the dorm and uh, I got sent home with an overnight bag, didn't have my computer. Um, so I had to, and we weren't allowed back to, to get any of our stuff. So uh, all around, it was an unfavorable situation for me. And because of that, like that's when the fist shaking towards uh, anybody who tried to wield authority over me began. And um, that's when I began actually questioning our institutions uh, in general. Um, you know, the following year, the, the school had uh, things like a vaccine mandate, and I was able to get around that. But even still, uh, you know, that summer, I decided to take, you know, what I learned throughout high school. I had always been relatively into business, uh, and, and I wanted to see if I could actually run a business. I had a boatload of free time on my hands over the spring now that I was home from COVID and we were doing Zoom University. And so I took all the capital that I had earned up to that point. I had been saving away for a rainy day and I decided to start a painting business. Um, I hired on uh, some of my friends, I trained them up. The reason I decided to do a painting business was because it is like the exact opposite of rocket science, it is so easy. And I figure if I want to you know, test my limits in running a business, then this is where to start, right? I was 18 years old and uh, over that summer I managed to do six figures in revenue. Um, and I did quite well for myself. I learned a lot. Uh, I, I tend to think that selling, door-to-door uh, -door selling, is something that everybody should do in their life. They, they, they need to learn how to handle rejection. And, and that put a lot of hair on my chest. And uh, it, more importantly, you know, I, I learned how to run a business there. And I had also uh, come into the possession of a lot of deployable capital. 
uh, you know, up to that point, I was interested in finance, but the, the majority of my investing extended to equities, uh, some of the bigger names in the S&P 500, hadn't really dabbled in, in the space beyond that or, or, or thought to question, uh, you know, much deeper than that. At the time, I, I was actually not majoring in finance or econ. And then uh, my friend Tyler LaRoche, who uh, we were friends up at school, he introduced me to, he now works at Bitcoin Magazine. Um, he introduced me to the bullish case for Bitcoin uh, by Vijay Boyapati, and then The Masters and Slaves of Money by Robert Breedlove. And I, I read The Masters and Slaves of Money first, and I really resonated with that because as I said, like, you know, this, uh, this skepticism towards authority, you know, they were, uh, they, they'd sent me home from school. I was still supposed to pay for it. Um, all, all this other nonsense, I, I wasn't becoming a fan of it. And, um, you know, after reading that piece by Breedlove, I, I gained a bit of an understanding that, you know, ultimately the money changers are the ones who rule the world, right? You know, this, this introduced me to central banking. This got me more interested in, in uh, Keynesian economics and this idea that a central entity can just influence aggregate demand, um, which is this, you know, sort of ethereal concept that economists love to posit, but they never have much detail. And, and you know, they, they try to apply science to human behavior and it has deleterious outcomes. And, and I, I not only took up a, a, an econ minor because of that, but I also began to see central banking as the problem and, and Bitcoin as the penultimate solution. So that is originally what, uh, what caught my attention about Bitcoin. The, the following summer, I ended up doing the same thing I did the previous summer, which was uh, running a painting business, but this time I ended up doing uh, a quarter million dollars in revenue. And I figured I get one of two things. I could either go through to my last two years of school, you know, and then do another painting business, etc. Et or I could take what I've been researching independently, uh, you know, I, I'd uh, taken up a, a markets research hobby at that point. I was reading every single book that I could get my hands on. Um, I could either do another two years of school, or I could try to fast track it. I could slam on as many credits as I possibly could, and I could try to get out uh, the following year, right? And so that's what I ended up doing. I graduated a year early, um, you know, so I, I'd spend the majority of my final year really just, I, I made a Twitter account. Um, you know, I, I started publishing my research independently. Um, that's what, you know, another friend of mine, Dylan, suggested that I do. And uh, here we are today. You know, I've been covering Bitcoin and markets for a little bit over a year now and uh, haven't looked back. So that's a little bit of my, uh, my introduction. Nice. Yeah, it sounds like uh, COVID was basically the catalyst for you to, to kind of recognize like the importance of freedom, I guess. And then Bit Bitcoin being this freedom monetary tool was kind of a natural fit for with the direction that you were already going. Is that safe to say? That's absolutely safe to say. Yeah. You know, COVID really introduced that level of skepticism in my life. And I'm very thankful for it. Uh, you know, when a lot of people were very content with sitting on their hands for two years and we've seen the impacts of that, you know, the impact that that has had on, you know, young school children who aren't sociable and these, these, these awful, awful consequences, I decided to take that scenario and leverage it. And uh, I'm happy that I did for sure. Nice. Yeah. So you mentioned at the end that you now do a lot of market-based research. Um, I know you, you work with Nick Batia um for at the bitcoin layer and you guys do an awesome newsletter there see it behind you yep it's amazing um so let's go ahead and jump in like what's going on with the markets i know today we're, we're recording this tuesday afternoon and basically you know over the past few days and hours we've we've practically seen ftx blow up you know what are your initial thoughts on, on what's been going on 
Yeah, it is, uh, it is unwound very, very quickly. Essentially, to set the scene for the listeners, FTX is the second largest cryptocurrency exchange in the space. Um, and uh, Alameda Research is essentially, you know, just like the Federal Reserve and the United States government don't have a direct relationship, right? The Federal Reserve isn't federal. Alameda Research technically isn't a research wing of FTX, but, you know, they, they may as well be in the same building as Dylan said this yesterday on the spaces. You know, essentially, Alameda Research is the sister uh, company of FTX, right? The same leader, Sam Bankman-Fried, or same founder, I suppose. He's still the CEO of FTX, um, but he's the founder of Alameda Research. And essentially, what has occurred over the last uh, week is that Coindesk published an article um, that went through Alameda Research's balance sheet. And it revealed that there were $14.6 billion uh, worth of assets on the balance sheet. But the overwhelming majority of it was represented by a token that was printed out of nowhere by FTX, the FTX token, um, for exclusive use on the FTX platform, right? It's traded, it's got an open market, it's got a price, but essentially the benefit of owning the FTX token is that you have lower fees on exchanges and, and a couple of other benefits here and there. So essentially, when Coindesk leaked this and it came out that the majority of their balance sheet or the largest individual owned asset was FTT, this FTX token, that again was printed out of thin air with the stroke of a pen, um, then people started to panic, right? You know, people, not just people who held FTT, but also uh, people who were just generally concerned about the contagion that someone's balance sheet made up of vaporware could bring to the space, right? What happens if somebody decides to sell this and sell this in size? Alameda Research, the majority of their balance sheet, right, the largest position, again, is made up of FTT. They have three and a half billion of unlocked FTT, 2.16 billion of FTT collateral, and the word collateral obviously implies that they're borrowing against it, right? If you have an asset on your balance sheet and it is the largest single thing that you own, chances are you are going to be borrowing against that. You're gonna be using that as collateral. Just the same way that banks, um, they have bank reserves that they lend out against and, and uh, you know, individuals, they you know, take out mortgages that are collateralized with their house uh, for, for the listeners to simplify it. Alameda Research and by extension FTX we're borrowing against essentially vaporware. So essentially market participants looked at that and said, that is unsustainable. That's a feedback loop we're not comfortable with. And essentially there was, you know, if this is being used as collateral, then by extension, there is a liquidation target, right? There is a price at which Alameda Research and FTX get margin call. And what essentially has occurred over the last 48 hours is Binance, the largest cryptocurrency exchange, it publicly announced, and this is a key portion, it publicly announced its intent to sell off $2.1 billion, right, of Binance USD and uh, FTT, right? So $2.1 billion of the FTX token onto the open market, right? So we have this token, market cap of $3.5 billion, $4 billion, and Binance owns half of it. And they have just publicly announced they're going to sell that onto the open market. What do people do? They pile into short positions. So now, because it was publicly announced and there wasn't an over-the-counter deal, right, which would have been a lot smoother, you've got to think, what is the intent of Binance in this situation? If their intent is to sell their FTT and make off with a profit, then they could do an over-the-counter deal with Alameda for $22. 
Uh, Alameda Research actually said that they would buy it all from, F, uh, from Binance for $22, and Binance didn't respond, right? Their intention, right? So, so if they denied the over-the-counter deal, which would have the least impact on market liquidity and price, and they chose the path of most resistance, of most pain, to dump 50% of a coin's market cap onto the open market, uh, then the intention obviously wasn't to get a profit. The intention obviously wasn't to make sure that the losses for Alameda and FTX were contained. The intention was to maximize the losses, maximize the pain felt on the balance sheet of FTX. So essentially, you know, FTX, after this Coindex release, was in a very precarious situation because it was leaked that essentially the majority of its research wing uh, was hold uh, the, the majority holding position of its research wing was vaporware. So it was in a very vulnerable position. And then Binance, its primary competitor, decided to speculatively attack the token, create a tremendous amount of undue selling pressure, not just with its own balance sheet, but also with the, you know, with, with the short pressure of all of these retail speculators that are now aware that Binance is selling half of this coin's market cap, and essentially take that combined sell pressure and try to push the price of FTT down to a level where Alameda Research starts getting margin called on its FTT collateralized loans and FTX Research is forced uh, to become the buyer of last resort of the FTT token. Start liquidating everything else you own to buy this FTT token and the reason you do that is so that you don't face margin calls. And so Binance essentially, they were playing 4D chess here. A lot of people uh, they're wondering why CZ came out and said this publicly. You know, if you if you take it past the the first order effect, what actually occurred? It seems like this was deliberate. It seemed like this was a ploy to distress, to depress FTX's assets to such a degree that Binance could purchase them at a discount. Yeah, I think that was a great synopsis of of what's been happening. So so now, like you said, like you ended, Binance or CZ basically came out with a tweet that they have uh, or they're intending to potentially buy out FTX at probably a, a massive discount to what their valuation was last year when they raised a ton of money from a lot of traditional VCs. Do you think that that's going to go through? Will Binance actually acquire FTX or, or is that like an unlikely scenario? I don't think they're going to actually acquire FTX and here's why. I think if we perform a thought experiment, then we can understand, I think the viewers can more easily understand why I don't think they will. So the wording of the statement, and I have it up in front of me just to read it off here, is that there's a significant liquidity crunch. They, they said this, and there was, this was, there was speculation about this. You know, we were saying this on Spaces yesterday, that there was a liquidity crunch uh, that FTX was facing, right? It was, it was forced to essentially fire sell its assets in order to uh, make sure that it can prop up the value of the FTT token. At the same time, by the way, FTX was also faced with extreme customer angst, and so it was faced with an extreme amount of withdrawals. So at the same time that it's getting, uh, I believe, $1 billion of net outflows on chain, this is observable in, in exchange wallets, so it was contending with a bank run at the same time that it was draining its liquidity, not to ameliorate the bank run and make sure it could meet its withdrawals, but to prop up the FTT token. So liquidity crunch is like an absolute understatement. So. Basically, they were forced to go to Binance and say, look, you know, we don't have a discount window with the Fed. The Fed can't bail us out. They don't view us as, you know, systematically important, right? They would prefer if we didn't exist, right? You know, they're, they're trying to enact the reverse wealth effect. The last thing they're going to do is purchase 
at, you know, at bail out this exchange. So they had to go to Binance, and, and Binance was the one to ameliorate, ameliorate this liquidity crunch, which is funny because they were the ones that started it off to begin with. And they said that they signed a non-binding LOI, non-binding letter of intent, to fully acquire FTX.com. Non-binding. Why is it non-binding? Well, if you think about it, we just talked about how it seems like because this was publicly announced and because, you know, you, you saw the retail reaction, not only did shorts pile in, you know, I believe it went from 4 million contracts outstanding on uh, uh, perpetual futures contracts for FTT. It went up to 25 million, right? So through publicly stating this, it added retail sell pressure. So the intent, ostensibly, is to absolutely tank FTX, right? So it becomes, what is the desired outcome from Binance, right? If they want to tank their next competitor in line, the second largest global crypto exchange, there are a couple of things they could do, right? It, they, but they both start out the same way, which is uh, tarnishing their reputation and causing a run on the number one asset that comprises FTX and Alameda's balance sheet. But the damage has already been done to FTX. Now it's, Binance, it's up to Binance to either purchase those distressed assets or go through this process of essentially FTX has already come out and said that they were a liquid. They were in a liquidity crunch. And at the end of the day, if Binance backs out of the deal, they get what they wanted to get done, done. FTX's reputation is completely tarnished, right? Because they, they went ahead and said, yes, we're a liquid, we admit it. And now Binance could just as well pull out of the deal and get the exact same outcome. If they purchase the distressed assets, they now own FTX and FTX is no longer a competitor or, you know, through FTX reaching out to them and asking for a lifeline and both of them publicly saying, yes, there was a liquidity crunch. Now, you know, if Binance backs out of the deal, the damage is already done. Its competitor is gone. So it's either, you know, its competitor, its, its, its largest competitor is now sort of already out the window. And now it's basically, okay, we have a non-binding letter of intent, right? So, so Binance has just as well destroyed FTX already. They, they don't need to buy its distressed assets. And so for the, those reasons, I think that, you know, the likelihood of this deal going through is sort of 50-50 in my mind, um, but probably leaning toward, towards not going through and FTX, um, you know, essentially going through uh, a sell over the next couple of months uh, leading into 2023 selling the remainder of its uh, distressed assets on the open market. Um, that's, that's sort of how I feel uh, this will play out. Yeah, I mean, if it doesn't end up going through, it'll be interesting to see like who decides to try to step in and maybe revitalize FTX or, or you know, however that would work. Um, I also saw this tweet that, that CZ did, did earlier today. He was talking about how Binance will, will look to implement proof of reserves uh, in, the, in the near future. What are your thoughts on that as well? I think that if you're conducting an internal audit, it's still an audit. It's still an internal audit, right? Even if, you know, the, the proof of reserves mechanism, it's always going to be somewhat opaque. It's never going to be fully transparent like we have with on-chain data. The beauty of on-chain is that we've been able to observe wallet balances of FTX and Alameda. I have it bookmarked, right? I, I have the ability to go in and basically observe the balance sheet of these two entities. Whereas something like proof of reserves, like that, that seems more performative, than giving an actual benefit to the end user, right? And in, you know, in essence, in, in performance, you're saying we are more transparent. But at the end of the day, if you're hiring someone to conduct an audit, you know, you're, you're hiring someone to conduct an audit, you're paying them to give you a desirable outcome, so you hire them again, right? So what are the auditors going to do? 
you know, they're, they're in all likelihood going to beef up what your reserves actually look like. And, you know, so, so I think proof of reserves, however you slice it, uh, you know, unless it's uh, observable multi-sig that, that, that market participants individually can take a look at and it's all visible, then I think any proof of reserves that, that they're, you know, saying they're going to do is little more than performative. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's an interesting idea. I mean, I, I certainly think that at the end of the day, there's nothing better than self-custodying your own Bitcoin. Like proof of reserves can't really replace that, but I think it, it would be a step in the right direction. But yeah, it, there are certainly problems with it as far as like, you know, actually being able to prove that you, they have the reserves and those reserves belong to their specific clients, whether you're the client or someone else is the client or so on. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do regarding proof of reserves. Uh, let's get into macro though. Um, what are your general thoughts on the Fed and monetary policy moving into next year? Most definitely. So when it comes to the Fed, we're at a crossroads here. We're at an inflection point. Um, this is the first meeting in 2022 where we've seen some Fed speakers begin to disagree with the consensus opinion, with what Jerome Powell has put forward as a decision. So this meeting, we went forward with another 75 basis point rate hike, which is, of course, historically supersized. Um, we, we've never in history had two consecutive 75 basis point rate hikes since you know, the, the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, and now we are having several consecutive back to back to back to back to back. So it's extremely aggressive. And some of the Fed speakers are starting to disagree with this stance and starting to say that we should slow the pace of hikes. And they're publicly saying this. So this is the first time in the cycle where we're starting to see those shifts at the margin from Fed speakers. Um, and historically, once you start to see dissent among Fed speakers, you start to see general disagreement begin arising. That's when you know the cycle um, for rate hikes is, is sort of coming to uh, an end. And, and we're nearing uh, an inflection point where we're going to slow the pace of hikes and get a pause. Now, consensus is pointing to that being in December. Uh, jury is still out on whether or not that will be the case. I think a lot of it is incumbent on this coming uh, CPI print, which I think should, in the Fed's eyes, hold less weight than they're giving to it. Because, of course, price inflation is a lagging indicator. I think it would serve them much better because at the end of the day, what they want is a growth slowdown. They want a growth slowdown in order to make price inflation slow, which, again, is Keynesian dogma bullshit. And the only reason that it occurs is because they artificially lower interest rates for so long and then aggressively tighten them into the stratosphere, cause a cataclysmic bust, and then artificially lower them again. And they go, what, what can we do? Right? You know, we are the system. There's no replacement for us right there. They're, they're horrible at their jobs. They create these situations. So at the end of the day, they're trying to cause a growth slowdown. What the Fed should be doing is looking at leading indicators that point to a growth slowdown, right? Falling commodity prices, uh, you know, falling home prices, these things lead a lot of other things. They, they should take a look at employment. They should take a look at not unemployment. They should take a look at continuing jobless claims, job openings, these, these sorts of things that lead markets. Um, but chances are, you know, who knows if they will. If we get a, an ex, a, you know, a meets expectations, then we'll probably slow to 50 basis points in December. But we'll have to wait and see. I mean, historically, the Fed has gotten it very, very, very wrong the reason we're in the situation we are today is because the Fed said that, you know, pumping the economy full of liquidity and keeping rates at the zero lower bound for 14 plus years wouldn't be inflationary, right? After COVID, we saw record fiscal stimulus, record monetary stimulus, 
it wouldn't be inflationary, and it was inflationary. So, you know, if the Fed, in my opinion, because of the aggressive pace of tightening, if they don't take decisive action to slow the pace of their rate hikes and eventually come to a pause where they hold, then, you know, we, we may have some trouble on our hands moving into 2023. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I liked what you uh, brought up about how how sometimes, you know, or a lot of times Keynesian economics is kind of like a, it seems good on paper and, and, and it seems like that's what's best for the economy. But in reality, it doesn't necessarily work all the time. And like, obviously the Fed messes up, you know, multiple times like throughout history and like when you try to centrally plan any market it kind of ends up leading to problems um so i think that's a great point. that's right it's the most it's the most disconnected like it, it, it's funny because like i've got this supercomputer in my hands and you've got a supercomputer in your hands too humans can coordinate better than we ever have before yet we're still in the stone age and we have a central entity above it all that acts like it can coordinate the price of money which is perhaps the most differentiated thing ever and it's it's uniform across the united states and the globe it doesn't make any sense it's it's completely archaic yeah exactly we don't we don't control the price of pens we don't control the price of microphones but for some reason we think controlling the price of money uh is essentially controlling it is better than what the market can control for the price of, of a pen it's fascinating yeah. but in in hindsight though i've thought about this and Breedlove talks about this on his podcast, a decent amount. It kind of makes sense how we got here, right? Like gold didn't really work well as money because it wasn't very portable. Um, it was not necessarily very verifiable either. So we kind of had these like paper notes that got built off, built on gold. And then that ended up cir getting circulated as money. And then we kind of like society kind of formed a around a lender of last resort. And then that's kind of how we got to where we are today. But there's possible that like if, gold was extremely portable, maybe we would have never gotten here to begin with. I, I tend to agree. Do you recall in May, uh, I tweeted this out and I'll explain it for the listeners here, but um, uh, it was one of my last days at college and uh, I was, uh, I had just, um, I had just tweeted this out and uh, it, it went a little something like gold was created or excuse me, dollars were created to transact gold, but they weren't verifiably representative of gold. Lightning was created to transact Bitcoin, and it is verifiably representative of Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin and Lightning essentially offer the solution that dollars were trying to create for gold, right? Gold wasn't very portable. Therefore, we needed to create something much more lightweight, much more divisible that we could send that is representative of gold to transact with on a regular basis. But what happened was the people who were in charge of issuing that note on top of gold, they got greedy. This is what happened with goldsmiths throughout time, everywhere, who end up issuing currency. You know, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. They decide that because I have access to the money printer, eh, you know, why not pay myself a little bit? Why not uh, create reserves in excess of the gold or create notes in excess of the gold reserves that I'm holding? Uh, in order to compensate myself a little bit more, right? And eventually that seeps into this largesse of moral hazard where that's just the norm and we've completely left gold now. There is no proxy that these dollars are being tied to. It is now just dollars that get created into existence. Money is supposed to be a representation of physical reality, right? It's supposed to be a, a proxy, a method of transacting reality between people and uh, dollars are no longer reality. They no longer have a tether to reality. Um, and as a function of that, right, 
this parallel system has emerged, Bitcoin, where Lightning solves the same problem dollars were supposed to, but it's actually representative of Bitcoin, right? And so it's fascinating, right? This, this parallel system is emerging that's sort of uh, ameliorating a lot of the issues that were present um, with the gold standard and, and what's happened since with dollars. Yeah, I'm definitely very bullish on Lightning. I definitely agree. You know, it's a verifiable form of, of Bitcoin, basically. Um, but I also think that it's, it's not necessarily necessary for, for Bitcoin to succeed. I think Bitcoin itself is still a step up from gold, right? Like with gold yeah. banks, you couldn't really call a bluff on the bank. It was hard to do a bank run. Like you'd have to actually physically go to the bank, request the bank, take your gold out. But as we're seeing with, you know, things like FTX and, and Luna, if you fractionally reserve Bitcoin, everyone, all the depositors can rush from anywhere in the world, demand their Bitcoin out. And if you don't, you know, withdraw it within 10 minutes, the next block, you're going to be like, uh, where's my Bitcoin? And then all of a sudden that causes a massive bank run. So it kind of makes Bitcoin in a way, it kind of makes fractional reserve banking kind of just completely unsustainable. It's just going to blow up very quickly. It does. And, and even if like the world is still in a credit system, and I tend to think credit will always exist in one form or another. Um, I think the temptation is there and, and, and for growth, it does quite a lot. But I think there will be more responsibility in a future credit system. But I think you're exactly right. Even without lightning, um, Bitcoin is a major step up from the ruling from the top down monetary system that we have, the centrally issued uh, money that we have currently. Because, like, you know, you could say dollars were created to represent value, but then the individuals who are responsible for creating them got greedy, printed dollars well in excess of value, therefore diluted the value. Whereas with Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin will always be representative of a fixed amount of value, right? There was energy expended to create it. And through time, there will only ever be a finite amount of them. So even if lightning ceases to exist, for some reason, it goes belly up and fails. And I, I tend to not think it will. Bitcoin represents uh, a holistically better uh, monetary system than, than fiat, for sure. Yeah, definitely agree there. But yeah, no, I, I also think uh, that credit will exist on a Bitcoin standard. I guess I don't think there will be necessarily like demand deposits where the liability mismatch and time duration is is not aligned whereas like you know everyone can go and redeem their deposit for once but the bank has lent out money for five years then there's no bitcoin there but i think if you you know agree to lend out your bitcoin for five years or one year and then the person agrees to pay it back in one year then that's a, a fair you know bond or, or loan yeah but um continuing off the uh, macro how are you thinking about the global growth slowdown right now and just rising financial instability and high inflation? Absolutely. So this is a great question. You know, the growth slowdown is coming a lot harder and a lot faster than central banks may anticipate. You and I anticipate it because we're on Twitter all day long. We've got our, we've got our ear to the markets and we're starting to see signs globally that things maybe aren't as hunky-dory as central banks want to believe. Central banks want to believe that after the most lax monetary policy ever, ever, uh, for 14 years, obviously a brief break during COVID, but for Europe, it's been straight on zero lower bound interest rates at or below zero for 14 years, coupled with extreme country by country fiscal stimulus. Um, the United States has been marginally tighter than most, but they had to reverse course very quickly. So essentially, it's been 14 years of unbelievably easy money, right? And, you know, 
Put two and two together that injects a tremendous amount of cheaply acquired credit into the system. Even if the borrowers are credit worthy, i.e., you know, if loans were to rise to two, three, four percent, they could pay it off no problem. They create tremendous economic value. There are pockets of the world where that isn't the case, right? So rising rates doesn't necessarily mean in and of itself that there will be extreme waves of defaults, but when rates are artificially locked at the zero lower bound, that introduces a tremendous amount of moral hazard into the system. Not necessarily moral hazard, but, but cheaply acquired debt. And ultimately, some of the participants that acquired at the zero lower bound are under the impression that that is gonna be the case forever. You know, you or I understand cycles. The average individual, company owners even, they don't understand cycles. Um, you know, there are, there are several people who um, were positing, oh, it's the, it's the end of the business cycle, it's the end of this, it's the end of that. Um, you know, it's gonna be boom times forever. That happens every single economic cycle. When, when we're reaching our zenith, when we're reaching peak euphoria, people think it's gonna be that way forever. And that also coincides with, with the absolute most relaxed monetary policy. And so we have all this cheaply acquired debt in the system, right? And now we are raising the price of that money faster than we ever have before, right? The Fed is doing it. And because other global central banks need to tighten in line with the Fed to achieve interest rate parity, um, we're seeing it globally. Right? So the Fed is unbelievably wayward and aggressive in its tightening to fight domestic inflation, but they're not looking at what's occurring abroad. Right? There's a global dollar shortage that is, that is occurring abroad because the United States is in a much more creditworthy position, um, you know, a much more growth susceptible position, if you will, than other countries. Right? We may be able to take the aggressive monetary, monetary tightening, but we have the most deep and liquid market of fixed income, everyone holds US treasuries, the rates on those are skyrocketing. Everyone borrows at a spread to those, right? Everyone holds those in their balance sheet. So foreign sovereign entities, foreign companies um, are now becoming increasingly short dollars because they aren't in the position to pay these extreme premiums uh, that the United States companies may be able to. So the United States, the, the Federal Reserve is looking at uh, domestic strength, right? Um, they're taking a look at the consumer. The consumer is strong. Corporates are strong. Balance sheets look great. They can weather this storm. But looking globally, it's a different story, right? We're we're seeing um, we're seeing the Italian uh, you know Italian yield, uh, bond spreads blow out. They're beginning to blow out. What does that mean? Italy is the least creditworthy borrower in all of Europe. Unfortunately, I'm Italian. That's the truth of the matter. They're the least creditworthy. They're bad at paying down their debt. They have to pay these absolute gargantuan yields uh, relative to, say, Germany. Germany is the industrial center of Europe. So what happens when Italian yields rise to such a level that Italian companies cannot roll their debt? When I say roll debt for the viewers at home, I just mean issue new debt when their existing debt matures. What does Italy have to do? Well, uh, what, what do Italian companies have to do, rather? That is the risk. Well, they have to roll it at a higher rate, right? But what if they can't finance at that rate, right? very, very bad things, right? That is when you start to see credit dry up, right? The economy grinds to a halt. And with the pace of tightening that Europe is undergoing, and it's extremely fragile borrowers like Italy, like Spain, like Portugal, um, they're going to tighten up and tighten up extremely quickly. So they're already entering a recession, and now they're going extremely tight with their monetary policy. Now, Europe is the example that I think is going to fall next in terms of the growth slowdown and financial instability. But we've already seen it in Japan, and we've already seen it in England, right? So these dominoes are sort of falling where there's this rising credit stress as a result of rates 
skyrocketing because the Fed is being very, very wayward with their monetary policy. And what occurs is rates skyrocket, right? Obviously, duration, price uh, of bonds and yields are inversely related. The value of the collateral held on the balance sheets of corporates, of sovereigns, and individuals is falling precipitously. So there is this global dollar shortage now and in the future as people seek to refinance, and it's already hit Japan, right? Japan has had to step in, and of course, it's been the marginal buyer of its own bonds for decades now, but it has had to ramp up its facility. It's draining its reserves in order to buy Japanese government bonds and buy yen, so they are very short dollars. England is going through the same thing where the gilt market, the, the United Kingdom bond market, um, almost imploded as a function of, talk about bonds selling off, the value of these bonds dropping so much, right, bonds that held as collateral, that folks who were holding these, they almost had to fire sale, sell their assets in order to meet margin. And what assets were these particular entities holding, called liability-driven investment strategies, they were holding more gilts. So in order to meet margin on their gilts, they would have to sell more gilts, which would push other people to sell gilts, and it would have sent rates, estimates were saying, in, in the United Kingdom, to 8.5%, to 9%, to 10%. Not sustainable, right? So Europe is headed into recession. They've already had to intervene. Japan is headed into, you know, it, it, it's having a growth slowdown despite not being able to get sustainable inflation. I don't know how that is. The, the yen is in the toilet. The, uh, you know, Japanese government bonds are in the toilet. And they've become the, the you know, they've had to backstop their markets. England has had to backstop their markets. And increasingly, right, we talk about spreads on, on European debt and the fact that they're already heading into a recession and an oncoming energy crisis. They need dollars. They need easy money. But they're going extremely aggressive with their monetary policy, right? So it's this mismatch of what the central bank is demanding of entities abroad and what those entities need. Right? We're moving into a global growth slowdown that's going to come harder and faster than it otherwise would have because we're t a gr uh, uh, central banks in conflict with one another are tightening very aggressively into it, right? And so the, the Fed is sort of at the center of it. That's essentially what we're looking at when we're talking about the global growth slowdown. We thought we had a recession in 2022 with two consecutive negative quarters of GDP. Yeah, it's increasingly looking like if the Fed doesn't shift the path for policy soon and, and look for a terminal rate, you know, it, it could get much uglier uh, abroad in terms of a growth slowdown. And then eventually that seeps its way to the United States. So that was a, a bit of a, a bit of a rant, but I, I hope there was something in there. Yeah, no, I think that was uh, fantastic. It sounds like the ECB will likely be the next central bank to, to kind of switch gears and then the Fed will be the final domino. And then at that point, you know, it might be game on for, for risk assets again. Um, I know this is something that both of us kind of found on Twitter recently. Uh, I was looking back at, at, at you know the 2018 bitcoin bear market when bitcoin basically you know fell down from 6k to 3k uh, and, and that was the bear market low uh for that cycle and basically right at the same time when bitcoin hit that low we saw the fed make their last rate hike do you think that will repeat again or like will the fed when, whenever the fed pauses will that mark the bear market bottom for bitcoin for sure. So I think that was in 2018, it was like, it was a synchronicity. So both of them occurred at the same time, but I don't think one had to do so much with the other. Like there were, there were cogs in the grand economic machine that caused these two events to connect, but I don't think they're, they're as close as the relationship between the Fed pausing and then Bitcoin bottoming suggests. 
I think there are a couple of things that have changed since 2022, uh, 2018 that make me believe we might already be at the bottom price range for this cycle. And this could this could age extremely poorly depending on when this interview airs and, and what occurs with Binance and, and all the turmoil there. But um, I'll go out I'll go out on my shield here, giving my thesis. I tend to think that because risk assets have been so forward looking, they've been in denial all year that the Fed is going to pause here, the Fed is going to pause here, the Fed is going to pause here, the Fed is going to pause here. They've been wrong every single time. Um, and rates have continued climbing higher and higher and higher and higher and higher, which isn't supportive of risk assets. But at the start of the interview, we talked about how this time seems different. Famous last words, but the, the, the marginal shifts from Fed speakers saying we've got to start slowing down and pausing very soon, that's going to be more supportive of risk assets, right? Risk assets are very forward looking. If they start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, as Fed speakers are suggesting, right, with language suggesting a pause uh, as early as Q1 or Q2 of next year, that's going to be supportive of risk assets, right? But for something like Bitcoin, even in the event that that doesn't occur, right, even in the event that the Fed decides to, to tighten and maintain higher for longer, um, you know, I still tend to think that this is the bottom price range of sorts for Bitcoin. And I'll give an analogy to the viewers. During a drought, right? let's say you're in the middle of a desert, you've got two swimming pools. One swimming pool is 40 gallons in size. The other swimming pool is 4,000 gallons in size. The swimming pool that will be easier to maintain and keep full is the 40-gallon swimming pool. right? So all you need to fill that swimming pool is a few buckets with a lot of water, a few key buckets and a lot of smaller, more decentralized, uncoordinated buckets to keep that 40-gallon pool full during these tough times. And these tough times aren't going to last forever, right? We know for a fact that this global financial turmoil is going to, you know, lead this drought to end relatively soon, right? We tend to think that uh, this financial market turmoil abroad, this global dollar shortage, you know, it's going to end the drought very soon. The other swimming pool, right, that's, you know, 4,000 gallons, it might have a much tougher time maintaining water during this drought. Granted, you know, they're both swimming pools. They're both impacted by the drought. That's not to say that they've decoupled. They're both impacted by the drought. But because of the very, very low amount of water held in one pool relative to the other, one pool is easier to keep full than the other. And I think that transposes itself relatively nicely onto the position that Bitcoin is in today. Even in the face of literally the second largest cryptocurrency exchange going belly up today, admitting that it was on the brink of insolvency. Bitcoin pumped 5% intraday, right? So we're seeing tremendous behavioral support at the $20,000 level and Bitcoin is only $400 billion in size relative to global equities, which are 40 trillion, right? We'll talk, excuse me, the S&P 500 index, for example, which is 40 trillion in size. So something like Bitcoin, right, that is viewed in deep value territory from an on-chain perspective, from a technical analysis perspective, from a, a production cost perspective, $20,000 has been, it, you know, price is truth and $20,000 has held it exceptionally well. It is viewed as like back up the truck, deep value territory for Bitcoin. So if that continues to be the case and the Fed pause is on the horizon and we don't experience a huge deflationary bust, whether that's within equities as well or just crypto native, which could be spurred on by Binance, then this could be the bottom price range for Bitcoin, right? And we've seen that since June. And granted, notice how I hedged my language there. If, you know, the Fed, the, the pause for the Fed is in sight, and if we don't see a deflationary bust beforehand, which I increasingly believe to be the case, because I think the Fed 
he's going to have to address the global dollar shortage sooner rather than later, which will warrant more accommodative monetary policy, which will be more accommodative for risk assets. Now, this could be a whole host of hopium, but by the same token, you know, we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. There are a variety of factors that will play into this, but given, you know, my thesis, that's my explanation. I'll, I'll leave it there, I guess. Yeah, I, th I think I tend to mostly agree. I mean, Bitcoin had its low in, I think it was June when it hit 17.6K. I think today we may have quickly touched like 17.5, making an, a, a new yearly low. But right now it's at 18.5. It's pretty impressive, I think, that it hasn't just gone straight through the June low with all of what's going on with the second largest exchange in the world basically announcing their insolvency. So I think that's kind of... There's been a there's been a lot of bad news over the last you know three to four or five months, and Bitcoin just kind of re refuses to go lower with you know all the minor public miners facing major problems, FTX. I mean the Luna madness that happened back in the summer. There's just been a lot of negative things that I think you know you would have thought it would have made a new low by now, but the fact that it hasn't is kind of a sign that hey maybe like selling is exhausted and we just need you know that one catalyst and we're and we're back at it. For sure. I think that, you know, macro is totally in the driver's seat right now. I don't want to get people wrong. Like at the Bitcoin layer, we cover Bitcoin through exclusively like a macro lens. Um, when, when in, in times like this, we tend to put, you know, on chain aside, we tend to put all these other things aside because at the end of the day, like money markets are running the show, you know, what are rates doing? That's running the show. And so I fully recognize that. I don't want to, you know, get viewers under the impression that I am super hyper bullish. But I will invent a new term today. I will say I am neutralish. I will say that there is no impetus for extreme upside, right? Because rates obviously remain elevated, um, and you know policy is still tightening globally. So there is an impetus for extreme upside, next bull market, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But also, given Bitcoin's tremendous behavioral support around this area, I don't think there's much another ninety percent drawdown in the store. Uh, in store, right? I think. I tend to think that resilience at this level is a good thing, and I don't want to disagree with that resilience. So I'm taking that resilience into account while also taking into account the fact that we're in an unfavorable environment for risk assets, just saying like, hey, we could be chopping around here for much longer, um, you know, and potentially, again, if the Fed decides to get increasingly more aggressive, potentially further downside. But through time, as you maintain this level and the, the light at the end of the tightening tunnel, per se, is making itself known, then you know potentially uh, again we could be sort of in that in that bottoming range without much impetus for upside until an actual shift downward in, in the tightness for policy occurs. Yeah, S speaking of of upside for Bitcoin, I, I agree that it's, you know it's not going to like we're not going to wake up tomorrow most likely and see you know hundred thousand dollar Bitcoin or anything like that. But uh, you also posted this one interesting chart on Twitter that basically showed how the last two Bitcoin parabolic bull runs were highly correlated with the global money supply growth rates. Like it was high growth rates in global money supply. Um, and basically the 2017 top and the 2021 top were like very correlated with that. Do you think that that's like the main driver of Bitcoin's parabolic bull runs? And if so, like when do you think that will happen again? For sure. So global liquidity is one of the largest factors of Bitcoin's bull runs. And I think the, the way to the way that I like to explain it, and I think this is the beauty in Bitcoin and, and what has drawn me to it and what continues to, to get me excited to cover it, is that Bitcoin is essentially a check on perpetual central bank policy error. For a lot of this, this discussion, we've been speaking about how 
the Fed is getting it wrong and they have gotten it wrong, right? They're not witnessing the global dollar shortage abroad. They seem to not understand that inflation is a rate of change. And if they pause at the level that they're at now, it would go down over time. They seem to engage in these extreme highs for interest rates, followed by extreme lows for too long, and then extreme highs very quickly. And this is what they've been doing time and time again for the last 50 some odd years. Um, as a function of this, if you understand that every single deflationary bust, every single massive growth slowdown is met with copious amounts of monetary stimulus, right? They create new facilities for pumping the economy with liquidity all the time. In 2008, you know, quantitative easing, it, it was a thing in Japan before, you know, before 2008, but in the United States, this new facility was invented where, uh, you know, bank reserves are injected into banks out of thin air by the, from the Federal Reserve uh, in exchange for a treasury, treasury, right? So essentially printing money. This liquidity facility was invented. It was invented out of thin air. And so if you understand that every single time there is an asset price bust, there's a growth bust, it is met with more credit expansion and new and unique facilities for liquidity and credit expansion, then you understand that, okay, if this is going to continue occurring, and I have no reason to believe that it won't, because you know the Fed is not just gonna you know, change their ways overnight. If I feel that this will continue occurring, right? This, this extreme credit expansion as a result of aggressive over-tightening of monetary policy, which I do, then I understand that the liquidity tide is gonna flow once again. And it's gonna flow harder and faster than it did the previous cycle, as it always has. And so with that in mind, I want to park my money somewhere that's a check on that. I want to park my money in the most porous sponge for global liquidity, right? What is the most porous sponge for global liquidity? Well, there are a couple of things. Well, I want to make sure that what I'm investing in, what I'm purchasing as a check on perpetual liquidity expansion, um, it's infinitely divisible. I want to make sure that when I get in, it's not as if new participants are going to be bidding up uh, you know, an increasingly finite supply, I want to make sure that it's divisible, say, into the, the hundreds of millions, right? I also want to make sure that it's infinitely scarce, right? What's the utility of holding something? Uh, you know, if, if we know that liquidity is going to expand in perpetuity, I want to hold something that is uh, infinitely scarce, uh, you know, absolutely scarce into perpetuity, right? I don't want that to change. And so when I take off all those boxes, when I understand that, um, you know, liquidity, uh, global liquidity, it flows harder and faster every single cycle um, as a response from the Fed because they don't know any better. They're not going to change their ways. Then uh, I pair that with the existence of Bitcoin, right? Then I understand that Bitcoin is essentially a check on that pro-cyclical over-easing, uh, over-tightening, fall by over-easing, fall by over-tightening, this boom and bust cycle monetary policy that continues injecting the economy with you know increasing amounts of liquidity every single time. And so Bitcoin offers up the apex solution for that. So asset prices in general, right? They all appreciate when global liquidity appreciates, but what is the most porous sponge out there? And Bitcoin, Bitcoin's the most porous sponge out there. Yeah, I like how you brought up the, uh, the, the monetary properties of Bitcoin, you know, the perfect, immutable, verifiable scarcity, the divisibility, and then you can obviously go on and on, portability, fungibility. I think a lot of people like overlook those very core fundamental properties of what makes Bitcoin special. I think a lot of people, when they first hear about Bitcoin, they're like, oh, it's too volatile. It's 
not a medium of exchange today. It's not really a store of value necessarily like for the next week. You know, it's people look at it from like a higher level and they don't really get down to like the core fundamentals of, of what makes Bitcoin special. Absolutely. I think Bitcoin tends to get conflated with these affinity scams in the form of cryptocurrency. You saw it today. Um, supposedly, James, James Lavish went ahead and tweeted out that a lot of people were ragging on Bitcoin. There were headlines about Bitcoin mistakenly, right? Because if you take a look under the surface, you realize that this had nothing to do with Bitcoin, right? Rather, cryptocurrency in and of itself, this whole new category uh, of investments, uh, everything that has occurred since Bitcoin is, is an extension of Bitcoin's success, of its network effects. It's essentially trying to prey on individuals who can't distinguish between the two. Uh, and it creates casinos. It creates these extreme, I guess, cryptocurrency native boom and bust cycles, right? We saw what happens when, you know, exotic products go bust during a liquidity contraction earlier this year, with Celsius, with Voyager, with all these other industries, you know, with, with, with 3AC. Uh, and now we've just witnessed what occurs when you print a token out of thin air and you borrow against it. And then the public realizes, wait a second, this thing's worthless. Let's short it into oblivion on, you know, the, these unregulated platform. And I'm, I'm not a shill for regulation. I will take the word unregulated platforms back. But, you know, let's let's sell this thing into oblivion because it's printed out of thin air and, and cause all these margin calls. Right. All of this, you know, all of the debauchery that we, you know, we, we decry as a community on a regular basis. Uh, I, I'd love for somebody listening to this podcast to go back in time and point point out the last time that it had anything directly related to do with Bitcoin, with Bitcoin's monetary policy, with its programmatic scarcity, with any of it. Right. You would be hard pressed to find one. Right. You know, in, in recent memory, uh, you, everything that has occurred that's been deleterious to the community at large has been a function of, you know, these Bitcoin adjacent uh, uh, things, these cryptocurrency products. Right. That are essentially, again, trying to influence impressionable people into, you know, buying my shitcoin. And so, you know, I think the, the ultimate solution for that is vocal and are articulate people who are willing to distinguish between the two and get loud about it. Right. And, and sort of make that known. And, um, there are people in the space that are doing that, right? Some are more acerbic, some are more, uh, you know, common mild mannered, but at the end of the day, the more people who are putting themselves out there and articulating the difference between the two things, the better, the less people get hurt through time. Um, and ultimately, you know, the more likely something like Bitcoin has a chance of, uh, you know, uh, monetizing to, to the highest degree that it possibly can. Yeah, I, I like what Pierre Richard uh, says about Bitcoin. He says Bitcoin is the least uncertain asset. And that's kind of counterintuitive for a lot of people because you see the price and you're like, wow, no, Bitcoin is very uncertain. Well, like in the short term, the price of Bitcoin, the exchange rate for Bitcoin for dollars or for yen or euros is kind of risky in the short term. But the certainty of the asset itself, there's going to be another block uh, every 10 minutes, roughly, no matter if. There's one computer mining the network, Satoshi originally, or there's thousands of computers around the world that are passing a, a, a ton of energy into the system. Um, it's, it's crazy how, how, cert, how certain the actual asset itself is rather than the price. Uh, one last question, then we'll wrap it up. Um, do you believe in the idea of hyper-Bitcoinization? And then like, if so, how do you see the world looking post-hyper-Bitcoinization? For sure. I tend to take a more, I tend to take a more, uh, I wouldn't call the word hyper Bitcoinization sensationalist because it isn't, it isn't sensationalist. 
it is a um, it is this unwavering belief that there is a better monetary system out there um, that doesn't that isn't incumbent on you know perpetual credit expansion and infinite amounts of moral hazard. Um, but I do I do like to tweak the hyper Bitcoinization a little bit. I think within the next fifty to one hundred years, Bitcoin will monetize to and beyond levels that we can't even conceptualize right now. But I think it will continue to coexist along things like gold, along things like U.S. Treasuries, um, within the next 10, 50 years, right? Beyond that, who knows? I will, in all likelihood, be dead beyond 7,500 years, right? But within my lifetime, I can conceivably see Bitcoin becoming widely used as a form of pristine collateral as a base layer monetary asset as it monetizes to 10 trillion, to 50 trillion, to 100 trillion, as it absorbs a lot of this monetary premium, and again, absorbs a lot of this new liquidity, this new credit that gets injected into the system every time there's an issue from the central bank, from global central banks, then I think Bitcoin will eventually monetize to a degree that people are comfortable holding it in their reserves, right? Individuals, corporates, and sovereigns. And I think within the next 10 to 50 years, Bitcoin has a 100% conceivable future as a base layer reserve asset alternative, right? And then through time, We'll see where it goes. I think um, conceptualizing beyond the, the 50 to 100 years, not something I'm trying to do. Um, I fully agree with the notion of hyper-Bitcoinization. And I think the form that it takes is over time, individuals, corporates, sovereigns, they decide to park their wealth in the vehicle that they know can't be manipulated because manipulation is only on the rise. Um, and I think through time, that bolsters the liquidity profile of Bitcoin, makes more people comfortable with holding it as a base layer asset. And that in and of itself, compounds. And then through time, it, it monetizes as a genuine alternative that banks are willing to lend against and hold in their reserves, that sovereigns hold, uh, you know, and, and individuals, uh, you know, accept for payment, better regulatory environment as a function of more liquidity spurring on more demand. Uh, that is essentially what I view Bitcoin's, you know, 10 to 50 year future to look like. Um, I tend to I tend to believe in the in the hyper Bitcoinization uh, thesis, the idea, and that's sort of the the view that I, I I see it taking. I think that's a great spot to end it at. Uh, Joe, where do you want to send the audience after watching this? Absolutely. So you can find me on Twitter at Joe Consorti. It's just the name that you see uh, on screen or below you in the title. And you could take a look at the Bitcoin layer. Just search that up on Google. Um, I'm sure the link will be in the description, either the bitcoinlayer.com or the bitcoinlayer.substack.com. We cover Bitcoin through a global macro lens. Uh, the goal is to help you navigate Bitcoin and market cycles while also making you more intelligent along the way, bringing you, uh, making you aware of, uh, of money markets, of rates, of commodities, of economic data, things you probably wouldn't otherwise be aware of um, if you were just taking a look at Bitcoin in and of itself. We like to cover Bitcoin um, through a global macro lens. That's what we do. Um, we've also got a YouTube channel that delivers the exact same message. So uh, take a look at the Substack, take a look at the YouTube channel and uh, and yeah, excited for it. Yeah, love it. Uh, yeah, definitely check out the Bitcoin layer. It's pretty much one of my favorite uh, Bitcoin related macro newsletters that you know anybody writes in the space. So definitely check that out. But thanks for coming on. I think this is a great conversation. I think everyone's going to love it. For sure. Joe, thanks for having me.